You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. There's one thing that I think anybody would be able to tell you, and that is that communicating is hard. It is hard to try and say something and have those same people hear what you're trying to say. Uh, It is hard in marriage, it is hard in family, you just feel like you're screaming at nothing and you just hope that you can be received appropriately. I find this a lot um, when I preach, remember it, uh, preach and people would come up and they go, man, when you said that thing, I'm like, I don't even, I don't even think I said that thing. I'm not sure I did. Now, that's not their fault, right? It's my fault. You know, the, the, the encoder, to use the fancy words, like that, that's the person who has the responsibility to be sure that you're being heard. But knowing the people to whom you're talking and how you're talking to them and the things that they think about and the things that they care about, it's important. We're going to talk some about just communicating today. How do you talk to people about Jesus? How do you communicate like a missionary? How do, you, how do you have those types of conversations so that they can understand what you're saying? Because just the fact that you have blabbered words at somebody does not mean that they've heard anything that you're saying, you've said. And when you use certain words like uh, Jesus or sanctification or anything like that, so often people, off, they have a built up definition of what you're saying. And so they're using your definitions to understand what you're, their definitions to understand what you're saying. And it just doesn't work. Because so, hey, what do you mean when you say that? So communicating like a missionary is hard. You feel like you're just kind of yelling at nothing. And just communicating even to like your coworker is hard. Communicating to your spouse is hard. These things are difficult time and time again. And we're in the book of Acts. And we have been going through at a pretty fast clip, because if you want to go, I mean, we could take 60, 70 weeks. Uh, One of my concerns if we did that was that by the time we're done, you don't even remember how the thing started. Uh, We've been there so long, like, what happened? Acts 1-8? That was like seven years ago. Um, So we're going through at a pretty fast clip in order to put some pieces together, but we are going through it. So uh, last week was our Thanksgiving service. We didn't do anything there. The week prior, we were looking at the Jerusalem Council, which happened after the first missionary journey. They were trying to do theology together and figure out who actually, how do you have to approach Jesus? What is necessary for salvation? And they came to the right conclusion. Salvation is by grace through faith, so there's no other hurdle that you need to jump over. After that, Paul moves on and he brings Timothy with him. And now it's Paul and Silas. Barnabas has gone a different way because they disagreed over John Mark who had left them in the first missionary journey. So John Mark leaves. And as they're about to start the second journey, Paul and Barnabas disagree over his leaving. And so they actually could not come to agreement together on why he left or what was going on. So they decided to go their separate ways. Barnabas takes Mark, Paul takes Silas. And so now we have a different helper. They grab Timothy. He's going through Asia, and when I say Asia, I really mean kind of modern-day Turkey, but going through modern-day Turkey, kind of marching through, and the Spirit keeps saying, don't go here, don't go here, don't go here, until Paul gets a vision to head to another city. 
He crosses over and he does work actually in Philippi. A lot of Acts chapter 16 happens in, uh, in Philippi where there's a conversion of Lydia and the Philippian church is begun and they keep moving along. We get to Acts chapter 17 and Paul is in Athens, kind of the seat of Greco-Roman culture. And so this culture creating place, he's there waiting for some of his ministry friends and um, that's where we'll be today. But the question that I think this text helps us with, it's not the only question, but the question I do think it helps us with is how, how do Christians communicate Jesus in a new culture, to a new culture, to new people, or even how do you just communicate Jesus to your current culture? Like how, are, how can you have conversations about Jesus? Because if you watch and you just kind of go through, and I've said these passages before, but if you look at Acts chapter 13, you'll see Paul talk to predominantly Jews. And he's giving this long speech about Jesus and it is packed with scripture references. If you go to Acts chapter 20, which will be in in a couple of weeks, you will hear, um, you'll hear Paul talk to church leadership and how they're supposed to operate. Another long speech in Acts chapter 20. If you go later in the book of Acts, you hear Paul's testimony. He gives his testimony a couple of times in this book talking about what God has done for him. If you're in Acts chapter 17, you see Paul sharing the gospel with a non-Jewish, a Gentile, but religious group of people. So that's where we're gonna be. And you follow the way he talks about Jesus to different groups of people because you can't talk to any single person or any group of people about Jesus the same way. It always changes. What they care about, what they're thinking about, how you would talk about it, it always changes. And so that's where we're gonna be. How do Christians communicate Jesus in a new culture? How do Christians communicate Jesus at all? So the first thing we're gonna do in Acts chapter 17 is just go through <clears throat> those verses. Just kind of hear the building blocks that build that up, and then we'll march kind of back through with what's going on here. What is Paul doing and how is this working? So we, he's waiting on his ministry buddies in verse 16, and we have this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So as he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, he just reasoned. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Just this kind of guy who just kind of picks up new things and just spreads them around. What does this babbler have to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. I always say that poorly. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And that place was a place where uh, some law was decided. That was a place where some new things were discussed. They brought him to a part of town where you could discuss new ideas. They said, let us know this new teaching that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Then Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, has a, he has a nice little comment. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So that's his little comic comment about what's going on. Now just stop for a second and think about this. This is the seat of culture. And Luke is writing about it in a way that's like, really, it's not that impressive. All they wanna do is hear new ideas all the time. 
That's all they want to talk about. And so even in how he's presenting it, what Jesus is to this culture is totally foreign. This culture, the Athenian culture, is supposed to be where it's at. And Luke is going, all they want to do is just talk about stuff. So in the way they call Paul a babbler, really what Luke is saying is they're really the babblers. They're the ones who just want to go about and talk about new ideas. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all uh, mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods of time and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he's quoting poets and storytellers of their time, telling them, look, look what they say, that's true. Being then, verse 29, God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed in the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the, whole, uh, the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard this, they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some mocked, and others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and the woman named uh, Damaris, and others who were with them. So that's our passage. Uh, it's a speech, it's not one of his longer speeches, Paul's longer speeches, but speeches make up a big chunk of the book of Acts. And so we have this. So just remember the pieces that happened. Paul's there, he sees the idols, he goes and he talks in the synagogue. They hear what's going on in the synagogue and they move beyond that. Now he's up in like kind of the, the civil area where you discuss. He discusses and he goes, hey, I've seen this in your culture and you have this unknown God, so let me tell you who that God actually is. And I've heard some of your people even say these things. So yeah, yeah, we, we, in him we move and live and we find our being, yeah, we're his offspring. These things are true. So let me declare to you what is true about what you're thinking and what you're grasping at. It's God, he created you. We can't create him, we can't create things in the image of him, which is to contrast the idols that are going on right there, but he created you. And there's coming a time when we will be judged, and in fact, and he uses that phrase, time of ignorance. And what he's saying there is like, there was a time uh, when God was gracious in delaying his judgment, but now that Jesus has come, it is clear that he is not okay with it. And so now we must all turn to him. There is no excuse, there never is an excuse, but because Jesus is here, it is clear what we need to do, we need to turn. Many mocked, some followed. We have no record here of, a, of an Athenian church beginning. We just have a brief stint where Paul preaches, and that's it. So unlike Philippi, where he get, you know, the Philippians get a letter a little later. 
There's no letter to the church in Athens. Not in the same way. So we have a couple of things as we think about just how he communicated, because this is quite different than the way he communicated in other places. I mean, if, if you look at that passage, in fact, let me ask you this. How many times does Paul quote the Old Testament in his message to those in Athens? How many times? Yeah, zero. None. He, he doesn't. How many times does he quote ideas that exist within the Old Testament? Quite a few, right? But he doesn't say, hey, well, if you look at Genesis, or what they call like Bereshit, if you look at here, you, you see this. He doesn't do that. So what he does is he just presents what is true to them. He doesn't proof text it because these guys have no connection to what's going on there, but he still continues to present what is true within the scriptures. So here we go, just a few things. How, how then can we look at this and go, okay, what's God doing here through Paul and how can we learn from this, this speech and what goes on? Because we don't know how effective it really was, but effectiveness is not our goal in regards to, we, we have the surefire way to get people converted. Like, this is it, we know. If you present the gospel like this, 10 out of 10 times, people are gonna come to Jesus. So I think this is where we start, right at the beginning of the passage. Be aware of the cultural idols and do what you can to address them. Be aware of the cultural idols and do what you can to address them. Again, we see that right away. While he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked, bothered, stirred up within him because, or as, he saw that the city was full of idols, actual idol statues. So he reasoned in the synagogue and with the Jews and with the devout persons in the marketplace every day. So he saw the city was full of idols, and he then began to discuss it. He was bothered by that. So when we look at like idols, we, we might think statues, like big statues off uh, in the distance. That's what they had. They had statues to different things. And many cultures today still have statues. We, in this American world, we don't have statues in the same way, but we still have our places and our things. Before we start there, let me just say this, an idol, what is that? I'd say an idol is anything you put in the place of God to try and find from it things only God can give. Anything that you put in the place of God to try and find from it things only God can get, to try and gain from it things only God can give to you. Identity, who am I? What is important? Where do I find value? Love, if we try to find love, looking for love in all the wrong places, if we try to pursue love from different outlets other than God, then we will always be disappointed. Passion, where do we find that? So. Anything we put in the place of God to gain from it what only God can give. And when we think about it like that, there are many things in our culture. Football. I'm just saying, I mean, that is an Alabama Crimson Tide uh, field, but there's, I'm not saying anything about Alabama fans, uh, though we can't seem to beat them at LSU. But that's one. The amount of energy, now I was coming from a college town, 
The amount of energy and attention that people put into their favorite team is rather significant. They will devote, I mean, it's hard to get us to devote like 75 minutes to being together. They will devote 12 hours to getting up, cooking, hanging out, drinking, partying, watching games, doing whatever, then finishing and just sitting at their tents, continuing the thing until late into the night. Devoting entire entire chunks of your life, year after year, season after season. We are not of the ilk of people who like to paint their faces for worship, but we will paint our faces for other things. We will demonstrate passion, we will demonstrate engagement, we will lose our money in these things. Sports gambling is gigantic. It is a huge part of this world. We will exhaust ourselves. For what? What are you trying to find there? Something to root for. Something to cheer on. Something to get excited about. Something to help give me value. Because if I went to that school and they had this kind of success, then I had that kind of success. But really, did you? I mean, I graduated in 2004 from LSU. What success do I contribute now to the football team? What did I contribute then other than dollars? Nothing. But there's this feeling of I'm in it. This is my team, this is us, we're all about this together. Football can be one or any, insert any other sport. Insert anything else that is competition oriented. And the amount of energy that can go toward that, knowing the cultural idols. Another one is success. People will kill themselves and they will cut corners to try and be successful to short circuit just maturing and growing in a craft. The quick win, the quick fix, the success that we want to have and the accolades that come from it. Well, success often or also has along with it money. And money provides for us security. If we can buy stuff, we feel good about ourselves. If we can provide good gifts, then we are loved. If we can cover the cost of things, then it just makes us feel good. There is such security in having money. And you often don't even know about it till it's gone. Because you're just living your life. You know, oh man, God's just blessing, everything's good. But people going after success, trying to earn, trying to grab onto what? Security. Another one that we often see in our culture, family can be an idol. Either the desire to have a family or the way in which we lead our family. When we say there is nothing more important in this world than my family, that's not true. Jesus says it, right? We preach on this. Who are my mother and my brothers? He who does the will of my father. But the most important thing is obedience to God by listening to the things the Lord Jesus says. And it's funny because, because something being important doesn't mean it has to be an idol, but when important things could become the most important things, the idol switch usually gets flipped. It's not to say there aren't things in your life that are important for you to go after, that are important for you to care about, to have concern about, but when they become the source of our identity, the source of our comfort, the source of our security, the source of our hope, the source of our joy, and we joke about this, but like when, when we're having a family reunion, it's like, I just want us to get along. Why? 
because that provides for me something. It lets me know that every, I did okay. If we all just get along, I need the people around me to know my kids are well behaved. I need them, why? Because you are, how you lead your family is how, and then the way people look at that are the way you're finding yourself good. Am I esteemed by other people? So when we look at what Paul does, he looks around in the culture and he's bothered by the idols that he sees. He's bothered by it. Question for you. Are we bothered by cultural idolatry? Are we bothered by it? Do our hearts ache when we see people going after things that will not satisfy? Do they break when we know there's something better for them? Because that's what Paul did. He's bothered and he sees the idols and he goes and he talks to them and he tries to go, no, 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 it's not this, it's Jesus. He's better. He is more satisfying than anything that you could conjure up. He is more for you than that will ever be. He will not leave you. He will not let you down. But more than cultural idolatry, because it's easy to get judgy, are we bothered by our own idolatry? Are we bothered by the the ways in which we ourselves pursue things to gain security, to gain hope, to gain identity? Does it bother us when we pursue the wrong things? Are we convicted and can we confess and repent that our hearts are currently in the wrong place and that we need to find our satisfaction from Jesus? I know that's a harder one for me. It's always easier to tell other people what their problems are. You notice that? I am an expert in the things you're doing wrong. You're an expert in the things I'm doing wrong. I get it. We love to tell other people what they're doing wrong because we assume we're doing nothing wrong. But are we even bothered by the way in which we create little shrines in our hearts to other things? Does it provoke us to repent, to turn? The final question is then, are we motivated by love to share? Or do we just kind of go, stinks to be you, I found Jesus, hope you get that thing straight. Are we motivated by love to share? So first kind of move there, be aware of what's going on in the culture and address them. Now, in our culture, hopefully we see that, but sometimes we can be lulled to sleep by it too. It becomes just such a common part of how we operate or those we operate uh, around that we now can't even see them. It's the same thing that happens like when you uh, start dating somebody or you uh, get married and you realize all the problems in your spouse's family. Oh, did you know that your family does this crazy thing? Well, you're like, of course not. In fact, you kind of want to fight about it because that's your crew, right? Like, ride or die. So, You see that, and it takes somebody else to go, did you know that this is kind of crazy? Did you know that the way that this happens seems bizarre? No, I didn't know that. And so sometimes it even takes us in our own world to have somebody else come in and go, do you realize? So when I talk to uh, people who come from other cultures, it might be missionaries who are back on, on site, and I go, what are you seeing in the American church? I see a lot, of. They, I often get comments on like, you guys care so much about entertainment. 
You're just so concerned about entertainment, just, like, just keeping yourself occupied, being amused. You're so concerned about money and stuff. And you know, we're like, no, I'm not. Like, they, they are over there. This section of Genesis is more concerned about stuff. This section is the holy section. Like, like they have problems. We don't have those problems. It takes a guy like a Paul to come in and go, this is what I'm seeing. Being aware and doing what we can to address them. But then there's a second thing, and this is gonna be interesting as we get into the second and the third, but find areas of common ground, okay? So he's getting there, he starts to share in the synagogue, they go, we wanna hear more about it, and if you look at verse 22 and 23, he says this, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you think is unknown, I'm gonna declare to you today. Now there's something that is interesting right here because wise communicators who wanna talk to people about Jesus are not gonna just show up and drop a bomb and make enemies. And there's a big difference, it's just kinda cool. Now, some of us here are big fans of the book of Romans and you should be too. If you're not familiar with the book of Romans, great book, okay? But some of us are like Romans one lays out why we're crazy. Okay, Romans 1, 2, and 3, like this is why we're bananas. That's kind of what it says, like bananas because you're selfish and you're kind of a fool. Like there's the summary of Romans 1, 2, and 3, thus you need Jesus, and that's the rest of Romans, and this is how we live it out. But, but the Paul of Romans 1, who's writing to believers, he's giving the background of why they are the way that they are, Okay? In Romans chapter one, he's writing this letter and he's like, these people are idol worshipers, they're pursuing themselves, they think they're more important, they're making God into their own image. Well, that's the same thing the people of Athens are doing, but he's not saying it in that moment, is he? He's not like, hey, I just want everybody to know that you're all idolaters and you all stink and you're headed to hell, like just get on out of here. He doesn't do that in this speech. In fact, he starts by just going, hey, I see you guys are religious. I read this inscription over here and it says to an unknown God, it's interesting because the Paul that is preaching the gospel in Acts 17, his tone is different than the Paul who's writing to believers in Romans chapter one. Different audience, different things to communicate. And so he's not trying to build for them in uh, Athens this whole theology of how all of the pieces fit together. He's pointing them to Jesus using what they know. So he saw their ignorance, but he doesn't get angry with them for it. In fact, he wants to move toward them and talk about Jesus. He does the same thing as he's preaching about how God created everything. He then quotes their own poets, in him we live and move and we have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So what's he doing? Paul's a student of their culture. And he's talking to them about things that they care about and things that they would know. So um, I was not graduating at this time, but uh, George W., right? He did a commencement speech at LSU one time. <clears throat> so he made a joke in that commencement speech about there's a bar at LSU called The Chimes. And bar and restaurant, they have good food. I don't know about their beer, but if you listened two sermons ago, you'd know why I said that. Um, so, bar and LSU, they have really good food. We like, like, the boudin balls, everything else. We go there, and he made this joke. W, he goes, he goes, man, if I were, you know, 
I, I, I probably would have spent too much time at the Chimes. I have no idea if this guy had ever been to Baton Rouge, okay? But he was smart enough to make a reference about what everybody in the room would have gotten. He talked about it. He probably has, he could not find the Chimes on a map. It's, but it was like half a, you know, half a mile from where he was giving that speech. But he knew enough to say, if I want to identify with these folks, then I have to find some things that we can talk about. This is why missionaries, when they get into another culture, it is wise for them to spend however long it takes to learn their language, because language provides worldview. How do they think? How do they talk? What do they reason? What's going on in their heads? How do the words, right? Like even your words kind of define how you understand the world. So we might have three words for this, and this culture might have 15 words for this. Why? because they see these different nuances. So you learn the language, you get into it, and you realize what's going on, so you immerse yourself in what they care about. You understand the things that they're worried about, the things they're passionate about. So when you see their idols, you can start to diagnose, what's going on here? I know you're religious. So, find areas of common ground. Let me just give a few that might work. I heard somebody say this a few years back, and it was so true. If you're talking to somebody from a Muslim background, you know what you could applaud in their culture is modesty. I see just how, how concerned you guys are over modesty, and it is, it's awesome. Our culture doesn't seem to have the same concerns, right? What are you doing? You're just bridging into something that you realize is going on, and you can just talk to them about it might even be able to say, man, I love how devoted you are to discipline. I love how concerned you are about those things. It's almost like we're afraid to do that because it feels like we are uh, in somehow then like giving a thumbs up to everything that that culture might believe. And we're not. We're not. All we're doing is saying, I love that. I love that because here's the thing. If we are created in the image of God, just like the Athenians were, just like you and I are, if we're created in the image of God, then there are ways the image of God expresses itself in every single culture and every single person. So why not call it out? Why not address it? Because you're not then just giving this whole endorsement to who they are. You're just talking about the things where you see the image of God within them. I love that. Maybe they are football fans. Maybe there's some other fan. Man, I love that you have so much passion. I love that. In fact, I think that believers, as believers, we often lack passion. We lack zeal. But even the book of Romans, chapter 12, tells us, don't be lacking in zeal. with family. Man, I know how hard it is to be a good parent. It is hard work. And even as we try, we know that we are gonna fail. I know that. So what do you do when you fail? You don't have to just renounce every part of a person or denounce every part of a person when you're talking to them about Jesus. Because if you just look at the ministry of Jesus, he doesn't do that. Even when he's talking to the woman at the well and he's like, you know, you have this many husbands. And she's like, whoa, right? He drops that on her. 
and he's totally gracious with it. He's not, he's, not, he's not like, get out, go get that right, and then come back and we can talk. I mean, Jesus is face to face with people who are rejecting him and what he has for them is love. For someone who wants to be successful, man, I love your desire to work hard. I love that desire you have to work hard. That's something that God has given to us. Work ethic, we're supposed to work hard. But you know what? God even says that work doesn't work the way it should. That working the ground is something that's now gonna be hard. It's hard. So there's always ways that you can find areas of common ground. And that doesn't mean, here's the thing, it doesn't mean you have to then immerse yourself in every single aspect of what they like. Okay? So Breaking Bad was a pretty popular TV show. If you haven't seen it, you don't have to see it, whatever, whatever. Hey, heap whatever judgment you want on me right now in this moment. But it was a pretty popular TV show. Now, as I, I watched like one episode and I was like, you know what, I don't need to watch this. But you know what I did? Is I read a synopsis of every episode. I was like, let me just hear what's going on in this story because a lot of people seem to care about it. A lot of people seem interested in it. Now, zero times have I been able to actually have a conversation with somebody about Breaking Bad. That's cool. But rather than watch however many bajillion hours of Breaking Bad, I just spent 30 minutes reviewing what the show was about. You don't have to be 100% immersed in it to understand what's going on and understand the things that people care about, the things that they're passionate about. Now, those two things are kind of just head work and heart work, but then there's something we have to be able to do. We have to be able to show the unique nature of God, okay? You have to be able to show the unique nature of God, which means you take what you're seeing and you show how God is different. So they have these idols and they create these idols and they worship these idols and Paul begins to tell them how ridiculous that actually is. And he moves to creation. He goes, God created all of us so thus he's not served by hands. He made from one man everybody and yet your people say he's not far from us. That's true. And then he gets to 28. Being then God's offspring, his creation, we ought not to think that divine beings are like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he takes a moment and he says, hey, God is different than what you think. There's something that you see over here, but let me tell you what God is actually doing. There's something you care about over here in your world. There's a reason that you're passionate about these things. There's a reason you're concerned. Let me show you how God actually is the one that meets the concern that you have. Let me show you about how he's the one that matters the most. And so Paul spends the bulk of this speech talking to them about God as creator. What is he doing? He's showing them how the idol doesn't make any sense. Your idolatry makes no sense because you've created that. And thus, if you create that, you have power over it. But we don't have power over God because he created us. It's a gracious rebuke of their culture, but it's a rebuke nonetheless. You cannot create God. That's what he's saying. You can't create God. So we should be quick to highlight how God is different. Right? So you go, hey, I see how you care about this. I see how you love this. I see what's going on here. Let's look at God. And let's see how he is. And so he spends a lot of his time on 
creation. But then he does this. He calls people to repentance. Verses 29, 30, and 31. Being God's offspring, we ought not to think of him as gold or silver. The times of ignorance, the times where he was delaying judgment are overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. He doesn't even say Jesus in this, but by a man whom he has appointed and, uh, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we have God as creator, you can't create him. He, then we know that judgment is coming, so I'm asking you to turn because there's a day where Jesus, we'll call him Jesus, but God's son will return to this world and will judge it and we know that's true because he raised him from the dead. And so he doesn't have this incredibly developed argument for them. It's a pretty rudimentary argument. You're idol worshipers, God's bigger than that. You should turn to God. It's just how he talks about it. And each time is different. So the unique nature of God, call people to repentance. And then there's this. You just gladly take the results that come, the end of the passage. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, which would be expected. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among them are Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others who were with them. That's all we know about how it went. And if you read commentary, some people be like, well, was Paul's Athenian, you know, preaching a failure? No. It wasn't a failure, it was just different. The results were different. It wasn't like there's like, hey, yeah, we're in, we're gonna start this church, it's gonna be awesome. And we're, like, it was just, he preached the gospel. It was received with tepid response. But the response is not Paul's to create. And so he gladly takes the results that come. And so if I, if I look at anything that I see in this passage and how, how could we kind of condense it down, I would just say this. Don't be afraid of people who don't know Jesus. Don't be afraid of people who don't know Jesus because every single person in this room, whether you know Jesus right now or you don't, every single person in this room is trying to find their identity somewhere. Every single person. For the believer, what can we have? Compassion. Because you go, man, I had tried to find my identity in that. I tried. I tried to find my joy in those things. None of us, never born saved, were not born knowing Jesus. And so all of us had a moment where we were not following him. And so we shouldn't be afraid of a culture. We go, man, how am I gonna share Jesus in it? It's simple. You get into that culture you spend however much time is needed to know that culture, that language and those people, and then you start talking to them about God. I think I've shared before, and I believe I have the years right, but I know of a guy who went to an unreached people group and he spent six years learning the language. He did not share Jesus one time for six years. And if it's six or if it's four, I can't quite remember, I do believe it's six. His point was, I am not going to get here and share the gospel with these folks until I know that they hear what I'm saying. And I'm not gonna know that until I know how they think. So he went and he lived among them. 
and he learned their language and he would watch people die and he would watch them grieve and he would watch them be hopeless and that's when he knew this is how I can talk to them. Because they seem broken when people die. But he had to take the time to learn the people. And once he learned the people, then all you're doing is telling the story in a way that they can understand. So we don't need to fear that. Why? Because we were that. You were an idol worshiper. You were pursuing things other than God. And then God in his grace showed up, just like he did to Paul in Acts chapter nine. Showed up. Now we follow him. And so when we see how he shares where you be aware of the idols and you look for the common ground and you show how God is unique and you call them to repentance and you just trust God with what comes. Be that if you go overseas or if you stay right here or tomorrow you're in your cubicle and you're talking to those people, those people all have things they care deeply about. Everybody's trying to find their identity somewhere. So for us, we get to show them why Jesus is better. That's what we get to do. Let me show you why Jesus is better than what you're pursuing. But we won't do that if we don't believe it. Which is why so often for the believer, our first move toward that is repenting of our own hard-heartedness, our lack of zeal, our lack of love, and our contentment with idols in our own lives. It's like, man, if I share Jesus with this person, they actually might be let down by how boring I am, by how little I care about things of God. And so it starts with our heart and then flows to others. Out of love, not anger. Out of grace, not work. Because we have been saved too. So let me pray for us. Father, as we read your word and we see the concern and we notice unique ways we can talk to people about Jesus, we ask God that you would be gracious to us. Help us, Father, to have a heart of compassion. Convict us of our own sin and our own idolatry. Show us, Lord, the people in our lives and how we can talk to them about how good you are. Grow our heart of compassion. Grow our understanding of grace. Bring to mind people that we can move toward in love because we see them pursuing something that we know will not satisfy. Father, may we find our satisfaction in you and the love we have found through your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So we continue.